This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an Opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. It's always good to be behind the mic with the Opportune Squad as we continue to discuss uh, major intersections of uh, important industry trends, technologies, et cetera, with the larger energy, oil, and gas industry. Now, before we jump into the main point of conversation, I want to make sure that you're all caught up on previous Opportune content. So I'm going to hit y'all with the usual plug. Make sure you're going to our website, opportune.com, for not only more research and information on our solutions and services, but also other Opportune content, including episodes of the podcast, but also articles, blogs, uh, videos, you name it. And you can also subscribe to E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So make sure you're hitting that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of all of our previous detailed conversations as well as notifications when we drop new episodes. So for today's topic, per usual, we're going to be exploring ESG once again. And this is a a usual battleground for our podcast uh, as we take ESG and often connect it with the larger energy uh, and more specifically oil and gas industry. And so today we're going to be honing in on the E of ESG. And to do so, we're going to be focusing in on regenerative agriculture. You may be wondering, what connection does regenerative agriculture have with the energy or oil and gas industry? Well, we're going to get into the uh, details, into the facts, and give you some actionable insights and strategies for how you can invest in or put regenerative agriculture to work for your business. So first up, let's get a quick definition. Regenerative agriculture is an alternative means of producing food, and its advocates claim that it has a lower or potentially even a net positive environmental and social impact. Uh, Regenerative agriculture has received significant attention um, from basically every player in the game today, producers, retailers, researchers, consumers as well, uh, and as of more recently, politicians and even mainstream media. So let's get a little more detailed. Today with our podcast, we're going to dive into regenerative agriculture to explore and unpack the trend, but then also intersect it with ESG strategies and investments in our industry. So today we're joined by two guests to give us the lowdown. First up, I'd like to introduce a first-timer for the podcast, Mr. Rick Mariner. He's president and chief operating officer at Standard Soil, which is a company that's commercializing the various products of regenerative agriculture. Rick, great to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Real pleasure getting to pick your brain on this and get a better sense for where regenerative agriculture is at today and also how it's applying to our industry. And then we're also rejoined by Patrick Long. He's a director at Opportune and he's been on the show several times. Patrick, how are you doing today? Great. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, always a pleasure getting to uh, source you on the podcast as well and get your perspective on the intersections of all these various trends and technologies with ESG in our industry. Uh, So I want to first highlight a little background from both of y'all so our audience gets a refresher on the perspectives you're going to be offering. Yeah, happy to. Carbon sequestration was the uh, entry into standard soil. That was this idea that we could 
from the oil industry complete the carbon cycle. You know, there's lots of different cycles in our ecosystem, and one of them is carbon. It it, it off gases from certain functions, and then uh, plants and um, and soils bring it back down again in a natural cycle. So standard soil, uh, as we'll get into a little bit later, was one of the ways that we could commercialize the carbon cycle and uh, put some of the stuff that's in the atmosphere causing some trouble uh, back to where it uh, could do some good work for us. That's how um, we, we formed a team back in uh, 2013, 14, 15 to think about this. Um, and even today, as we uh, seek out ways to, to turn carbon sequestration as one of our, uh, I guess, uh, off outputs of regenerative agriculture into commercial products, we're finding lots of other commercial products. And so standard soil is expanding and growing as we, uh, even as we speak. Well, thank you for tracing that for our audience. Uh, Patrick, let's jump over to you now. And, uh, you know, we, we've covered your background on the podcast before, but I just want to refresh it. So your focus over the years has been on supply chain issues, specifically in the downstream energy space. How does that intersection land you at ESG? And, uh, you know, as you trace that sort of career landing point, also talk to us a bit about how you see ESG playing an active role in the industry today. Yeah, you may wonder why a, someone who's been working with processing technology kind of found and uh, we now are find ourselves talking about regenerative agriculture. It comes down to supply chain and trends and staying current and relevant. That is important. And as the pandemic has so outlined, supply chains have evolved tremendously over the last years. And so one of the key ingredients that's intersected with supply chains, my area of focus, has been around ESG with a huge emphasis on the environment and making sure that we truly understand and are cognizant of the carbon footprint that is out there. And then it's great to find companies that are very innovative, like the one that Rick is working with, that are actually doing something about it to create net positive benefits, right, overall. There's several different push and pull factors, right? And there's there's not just one, and it's kind of this collective snowball that as the year kicked off, um, it maybe started with investors making statements saying that investment was going to be almost entirely focused on companies that were specializing in sustainable energy. You then have some uh, governmental policy leading the way, and we and then there are consumers that are demanding and getting more intelligence and demanding more and more from companies to take care of the earth and making sure that as products are produced, that companies are cognizant of what is going on. And I think in that need to stay competitive, what we see is the ESG playbook necessarily having to expand and therefore there need to be more um, unique and creative and, uh, you know, materially consequential investments and choices in this ESG portfolio because, you know, hitting on the easiest ESG wins no longer make you competitive, right? Just having an ESG strategy isn't really the competitive edge anymore. It's having one that is leading the pack. And that lands us now at regenerative agriculture, which I think we can you know, call for this industry uh, uh, unique and um, one that has a very, you know, high ceiling type of investment. Uh, there are a lot of benefits that come from investing in and utilizing regenerative agriculture in the industry. So I want to identify those intersections and why we are seeing such benefits. So Rick, I'm going to toss it back over your way. 
But can you just further expand on regenerative agriculture as a concept? How is the philosophy and the practice of regenerative agriculture different than what we might see on a traditional, you know, either family-owned farm or more sort of factory farm, right? Yeah, happy to. So, you know, it's a tough term to define. Uh, if you ask four people, you'll get five definitions. But it it, it is a broad category that includes uh, some really excellent new work, things like low-till or no-till um, seed drilling for, for row croppers, uh, the introduction of prairie strips, uh, things to look up here that make sense for folks that are in the conventional commoditized business, but doing a little bit better. Uh, and, but our focus is, is actually not one of the new regenerative agriculture. It's actually going back. I call it stepping back to go forward. And, and ours, our focus is, is mostly right now on, on ranching. The real definition for ranching is allowing um, healthy animals to range in very specific ways that evolved with the grasses that they feed on. So if we have to go back only, only a few hundred years to find that roving mobs of bison moved you know, from east to west, north to south, in these huge herds under the pressure of predators like wolves and bobcats. Uh, but then we as humans, we started to cut up the country. We put in fences and roads and freeways and subdivisions and and strip centers, and those bison are long gone. But the grasses have evolved uh, over millennia, and they don't really uh, mind the fact that we're 200 years changed. They still want to be grazed. And so this step back to go forward is, is recreating on the ranch land predatory pressures using really fine wires that have a little voltage that train the animals to stay bunched together. And then a uh, a rancher uh, once a day or, or once a week moves these uh, cows that are all bunched together like they had been and involved with the grasses around the pasture. So if, if you can hear it, adaptive multi-paddock grazing or mob grazing or paddock grazing. What it does, though, is it lets the grass get munched once, not so badly that it gets down into the dirt and the roots, um, and not so selectively that certain grasses die as they had evolved. And then really that magic happens when the mob moves on, when the, when the, when the cattle move to the next pasture because um, the uh, manure and the urine and the hoof prints and the, and the chopped grasses um, pulse, right? They, they get a new surge of life. Suddenly carbon dioxide needs to be sucked down from the atmosphere into this, these new green lush uh, grasses. Uh, the insects, uh, especially the, uh, the beetles that come in and, and scrape up the, the, uh, the manure and spread it around and put it under the ground under the ground and lo and behold um, you go in after uh, a few days or weeks or, or in some cases very dry climates you know many months and that land has uh, rebounded has been regenerated and you can dig down you take a spade a shovel and dig down a, a, a foot or two and you can see the the layers of black carbon rich soil start to accrete that's what we're doing that's what i would say the regenerative um, agriculture looks different than the current um but and that's the, our specific focus right now is on the ranching side now connect the dots with standard soil then um you know, how did that philosophy for regenerative agriculture motivate a company like standard soil to now enter this space and see it as one ripe for opportunity for commercialized and scaled products. 
Well, it actually goes back to uh, two of the five of the uh, initial movers, investors and founders came from the oil industry. So our current CEO, Russ Konzer, and I were both at Shell Oil Company back at the time. And uh, there was a project called Project Metalark where Shell thought that with nature-based solutions, we could, uh, I guess, harness ecosystem services to provide some of the cleanup, right, of the carbon that we see in the atmosphere. And so over the course of about 18 months, um, they funded and staffed a project uh, with, with Russ and I and a couple others to go around and talk to various policymakers and academics to see what is the latest and greatest uh, work being done in nature-based solutions. And standard soil, uh, once it, we, we are able to, to take this uh, public information out and move it, move it into a business, um, was one of those business where was one of those business plans that said, you know, for the consumers to find what they want in the marketplace, we're going to have to be more creative than just the commodity business. And so Standard Soil was was put in place to find what was the pathway to consumers. And uh, really, over the last couple of years, we've experimented with a few different pathways. And here we are in 2022 with, um, I think, two pretty solid and growing pathways where we can move consumer dollars, folks that want to do uh, make purchases in the market for regenerative agriculture back to the ranchers that are making the actual activity. So again, it's the background in trading makes sense because uh, suddenly there's an arbitrage between what the consumers want and what they can find in the marketplace. And so enter standard soil to close that gap and, and bring it to market. And that's so curious to see a company as large as Shell uh, invest in a regenerative agriculture initiative in 2013, which is actually kind of early for the larger ESG shift I think we've seen over the last 10 years? Well, you know, I, I, I'm not as surprised, uh, maybe because I was part of Shell for so long. But uh, if sure. we look back at 2013, 2014, that was the transition from uh, CEO Peter Bozer over to Ben Van Buren in 2014. And I think there was a, a, a real and legitimate concern that the consumers were speaking up and they wanted to see in the marketplace, uh, solutions to these uh, problems that they were just then beginning to kind of really dig into in, in the marketplace. And carbon sequestration was one of the molecules, one of the problems that we're trying to solve. Um, it, it turns out once we dug into it though, that nature-based solutions are way beyond just carbon sequestration. It moves into uh, cleaning up water supplies, preventing runoff into rivers, uh, increasing the uh, biodiversity of lands. Um, so it was, it uncovered a treasure of nature-based solutions long before ESG was a walking around word that we used. Uh, nature-based solutions will be an important part of, I think, a lot of oil companies' plays going forward. So, Patrick, I want to have you weigh in here as well. Um, what are you seeing in the uh, industry today with how oil companies and gas companies are approaching uh, nature-based solutions? Yeah, I'd like to echo, you know, what Rick said. I, I think that's great. There are companies like Shell, which took the bull by the horns and started this before it became trendy and kind of a hot topic. You know, those would be absolutely commended. But it's about, if you think about it from a commercial aspect, it's about a diversification of your portfolio, right? And so companies are, in addition to being concerned about the environment where their employees are working, where their customers are living, 
and wanting to make sure that those are regenerative and uh, doing whatever we can to help protect waterways and all of the fragile ecosystem that's out there. Um, there is an aspect to making sure that we're diversified, right? So there are a lot of companies that are entering the market for various reasons in order to supply and fulfill the demand that's out there. And so it's nice. I mean, I mentioned several push and pull factors. It's nice that it's a mixture of all of these different factors. I also want to highlight some of the operational needs that go into making regenerative agriculture an actually viable investment in this industry. Uh, so, Rick, I'm wondering if you can expand on that for us. Can you talk a bit about the role of um, ranch certifications in this space and uh, how third parties and specifically third party audits play a role in uh, validating regenerative agriculture as a viable investment in the industry? Let me break up the answer into two parts and first say that uh, for those regulatory or what we might say an involuntary market where action must be taken, uh, we think of the EU or you think of California, um, there are specific protocols and there are specific uh, runways to, to get those protocols approved. And soil carbon sequestration and those other ecosystem services that nature-based uh, solutions give us are on the road to being approved in those protocols. Good friends of the company and, uh, and, uh, and our network are working uh, regularly to get those protocols uh, supported. And there's pressure and there's pressure on the political side to include, include soil carbon sequestration for soil health for any, any, any country. Uh, but there's, there's, there's both advocates and there's folks that will, will argue it. Uh, and quite frankly, I, I like to see the healthy debate early because it allows the science to lead and the data to lead. Um, the results in these first ranchers uh, that, that, are, that have been moving their land into regenerative agriculture are visually and, and observationally positive. You want to be on these pieces of property that have turned the corner and are bringing back biodiversity and animals and health. Um, but let me talk then about what is it to be certified today in the voluntary markets. When we want to go to the marketplace, though, we need, uh, we need something that's even more, I guess, unassailable than simple science. <laughs> so we went looking to see who in the, in the current group of respected um, names could independently certify what we're doing. And we were very happy to find in 2017, the Audubon Society, again, a high reputation organization, had created a not, not to pay to play. So this is a, you can't pay them to get the certification. You actually have to do the behaviors, uh, make the changes, and then uh, essentially be audited to show that you're doing these regenerative agricultures. And, and their, their entry into this is uh, birdland habitat. Um, we can't, you can't fake it with birds. Uh, you can stock a pond full of trout, uh, they can't go anywhere, but if you stock a land with a bunch of birds, uh, they're going to fly. They're going to go to where the land is healthy, where they can find the insects and the nesting and uh, the, the diversity they need to be able to live. And so the conservation ranching program that Audubon put out was already ready in place for us and has been growing year on year. Um, the, the good folks at Audubon, again, they're independent from standard soil. They're independent from the ranchers. They are focused on the American flyway. So really from Mississippi up through uh, the Dakotas and up into the uh, Canadian prairie. Uh, but there's ample range land in there for us to to work with ranchers and then move cattle from, from those ranches into the consumers. So they're a great partner. We look forward to growing with them. And, uh, and I think they give 
uh, a clear and, and unassailable reputational stamp of approval um, on these on this work that the ranchers are doing. They're not the only ones out there, but they're the ones that we're we're, we're working with now. And so, are you finding that meeting those metrics is difficult today? Uh, you know, are are there uh, challenges that ranchers and uh, you know farmers, both family farmers and larger kind of corporate factory farmers, uh, are facing as they implement regenerative agriculture? Yes, no, and what have you seen as some of the strategies for overcoming any of those challenges? So yes, there are you know there are challenges, but there are challenges associated with any change, especially when you're changing away from something that was uh, pretty ubiquitous, uh, relatively cheap for certain definitions of cheap and uh, and easy. Um, but I, you know the analogy is is akin to are you training to be a sprinter in a running race or are you training to be a marathoner in a, in a very long race? If you wanted to be a sprinter, um, the the current uh, chemical cocktails you can pour on your land. And practices you can use uh, can fast forward that, that the production of that land for a certain period of time. But just like a sprinter, after 100 yards, you're you're going to need different things. So these ranchers that have moved into a different mindset that said we want this land to be intergenerationally valuable to our family or to our shareholders. And so what do we have to do differently to run this marathon that we call regenerative agri- agriculture? We're going to reduce inputs. We're going to understand the water cycle better. We're going to make sure that the animals are mobbed and, and kept in an in a, in a evolutionary sink with the grasses. Um, there are some ranchers that were already doing this and then came in and got the seal of approval. Obviously, no big change for them. Um, some ranchers came to this really either because the land broke and no matter how much they sprayed on it, it wouldn't work anymore. Or there's been a generational shift where one generation who held certain things to be true has moved on, has, has retired from the field, and the new generation comes in and says, wow, um, this is hard. I want it to be easier, and I want it to be easier so that my kids want to be here as well. And corporations will come to it, and I think the incentives in the commercial space uh, are, are there to be watched. Big, big corporations are watching what the small ranchers are doing. And this is regenerative agriculture is about growing intergenerational wealth of our uh, prairie and ranch lands for all of us. And so I, I worry about, again, this pressure to fast forward something that actually takes a little bit of time. Not a lot of time, but a little bit of time. So to answer your question, it is yes, but it's, it's not impossible. All right, Patrick, I want to toss it over to you uh, to kick off a more focused ESG conversation here. So what role would you say regenerative agriculture is playing in some of the larger uh, ecosystem of ESG portfolios that we see today, right? What strategies are you seeing um, uh, oil and gas companies use to properly validate these investments, not only to shareholders, but also to the growing role of outside stakeholders like customers and also other uh, internal stakeholders like employees, right? That's a that's a great question. There's a lot there to unpack. The SEC came out with a ruling about 510 pages on March 21st of this year. And so that ruling focuses on making sure that companies disclose in their annual reports and prospectuses, along with audited financial statements, what they have in in terms of um, a quantitative disclosure on the greenhouse gas emissions that they have. And so that's broken down into three different categories, scope one, two, and three. 
And so companies are having to look at this. They're being audited. And so I think one of the big words here in answer to your question is around visibility and transparency, right, as, as a theme um, and something that I'm seeing. And so what is important is to uh, you can't change behavior unless you start measuring it and making it more transparent. And so disclosure and having it be an SEC disclosure is a good first kind of kick in the right direction, right, for companies. Um, but then it's really tackling and embracing this. And then to your point, as you were talking about consumers, how do we get consumers to buy in? And so uh, it's making sure that the visibility is there, there's a digital backbone so that we can consistently measure uh, the carbon intensity that is there. And then companies can work towards calculating what their offsets need to be so that you can then continue to broadcast and advertise that out and remain competitive and draw in consumers because consumers, as you mentioned, are getting more sophisticated and they are wanting to participate and be with companies that are taking a very active role. Um, in this space. And I'll open this up to both of y'all. What role do you see the larger digital transformation that we're seeing in the oil and gas and energy industry play in validating and supporting investments into regenerative agriculture in an ESG portfolio, right? And, you know, as we bring up digital transformation too, um, it's not like this is a new trend either. The industry has been digitally transforming now for, um, you know, you could say a decade, two decades, right? But if we look at even just the most recent slice of investments into machine learning, into um, more IoT technologies, and just rethinking the suite of um, software tools that support the analysis, ingesting, and uh, use of these various data touch points. I feel like there is, you know, a fresh battleground that we need to hash out and connect the dots on here. So, again, what role are y'all seeing digital transformation play in supporting regenerative agriculture uh, as a tool in a larger ESG portfolio? I could tee that up from a consumer and a wholesale front. And then, um, Patrick, you've got to hit that one home for me because the behind the scenes on what's driving these behaviors is still curious to me. You know, on the consumer front, uh, Standard Soil has two brands in the market. And we, we think we'll always have a retail-facing brand so that we can get real visceral feedback from customers that are engaging with our products. Um, but on the wholesale front, that's where we see the digital transformation really coming home. That we sell a white label grade uh, into producers that want to then upgrade it to uh, other sausages and meatballs and cuts. And it's in that white label volume where the question comes around the life cycle analysis. And they recognize, these buyers recognize uh, it doesn't exist today. What I'm talking about is almost like a blockchain for cattle, which says mm-hmm. from these genetics to this calf-cow operation, to this ranch, to this truck, to your grocery store, to your home, we know where these, this cow has been. And we know that it has been handled holistically and, and with regenerative agriculture. And we can attest to that beyond affidavits into real data, RFID, ear tags, you name it. It's a huge dream in certain parts of the world that exists more out of a, a sense of food um, safety. You know, uh, it didn't take very much for um, uh, the UK to come around to tracking every molecule of beef when they had their uh, uh, illness ear, uh, hit them a few years back. I think it doesn't take a crisis to want this, though. And I think consumers, at least through these white label negotiations, 
are asking for. And they understand it's going to take time. And there's some great companies that are coming together to, to offer this kind of blockchain tracking from, from genetics all the way through to uh, storefront. But, but Patrick, how do you see what, what's, what's forming, forming these, what ESG topics are forming these demands at the wholesale level that we're seeing? Yeah, those are some really fantastic examples for it. And I would say, you know, from my standpoint, where I see digital transformation, so Rick, absolutely. So it's in support of providing customers with that feedback so that they can connect the dots and and see which companies are and are not performing, right? Um, There is a concern of greenwashing, but when you increase the overall transparency and visibility and make it something that's core to your business, then the fact that digital transformation is just enabling you to tell the story and get it out there to more people to make it so that you can have that independent third party verification status that I think is so critical, important because consumers can't verify every single solitary cow. But what they can do is they can read up and understand about the Audubon Society and their program and then understand which ranches are included and then how the cows and the beef are being um, used within standard soil, right, to get product to market. I think another area, Rick, that you were talking about and kind of a sort of a backbone is, let's face it, ESG is also a bit of a burden. And so there is a lot more tracking and managing of data points. Um, If we think that, you know, Daniel, you mentioned the IoT. I mean, if you think if there are data points inside of like a traditional refinery or a terminal or a logistic network, it is exploded and it's less certain. And I don't think everyone's kind of honed in on exactly what and where to measure. Right. And so it takes an awful lot to collect this information, uh, collate it, bring it together in central databases, be able to measure and track and trend and benchmark and all those things that you need to do and then report on it and then figure out how do we continue to manage it. And so the digital transformation is bringing and connecting this Internet of Things, right? All of these different devices and scientific measures together and then making it visible for SEC reporting, for internal uh, executives as well to improve the overall business, right? And for consumers, it's all of that coming together. All right, Rick. Patrick, I feel like we've done a good job of detailing the high-level reasoning behind uh, regenerative agriculture investments in the industry and how they intersect with this larger push for an ESG-focused strategy from oil and gas companies. What I want to do now is peer into the crystal ball a little bit. We like to do this a lot on the show, but we're going to speculate a bit, try to look ahead and pull from not only um, some of the mm, paths that uh, Standard, Soil, and Opportune have laid for themselves over the next three to five years, but also try to analyze where the industry's headed to map out some actionable insights for our audience. What do you all think? I can tackle that first and uh, take it in two parts. We'll tackle the regenerative agricultural uh, front. It's, it is everywhere in the news right now. It's not hard to find um, both small and large organizations uh, looking and experimenting with this. If you turn on the feed and, and look for regenerative agriculture, you see quite a bit of competition. And as an advocate for the capitalist model, I think that competition is, is good and welcome. Uh, first movers may have an advantage, but they've got to stay efficient and they've got to stay uh, true to the principles that we want to make this intergenerational value grow um, and, and do so in a ways that we talked about today that are both auditable and true. So next three to five years, I think we see the uh, the investment grow 
in this space. Uh, and I'm encouraged by the, the number of phone calls, both from customers and uh, partners that want to help us solve the, uh, the, the, the capitalist solution that is moving value from what the consumers want into the hands of those that can give it to them, um, with or without policy, with or without re regulation, where the voters believe it needs to be regulated, that's the will of the voters. Where it's not yet regulated, I don't think we need to wait. We can we can move um, boards and uh, investors into the into the arms of the consumers in ways that uh, are repeatable and profitable. As for standard soil, I you know I'm I am uh, and my partners may disagree. I, I do welcome competition because I think it keeps everybody sharp and keeps everybody um, driving towards efficiency within these well-defined uh, practices. But I'm also marketing agnostic. You know, we've had a few starts and stops. I think our, our, our beef box business is uh, has had to, had to take a step back to be able to deliver our mission effectively. But our snack business is, is at a, an inflection point that we're very excited about. Our white label business where we bring these holistic regenerative products to uh, other brands that want to make that label claim uh, with high confidence that these are the partnerships that'll help us grow over the next three to five years. So that's an exciting time. I'm glad I'm part of this uh, organization now and, uh, and with, with other partners in the, in the business like Opportune, I think the pipeline to drive uh, people you know, towards solutions is, is only going to speed up the pace. Uh, how do you see it, Patrick? Yeah, the next three to five years, I was reflecting on a couple of things that you were saying. Um, one that really stuck out to me is the genuineness of where standard soil is and the balance where they've entered and they've entered in a very thoughtful way and have a very strong strategy. Um, I think the next three to five years are going to have companies that are going to be more focused like Standard Soil and what's going to happen are the ones that are merely trying to do some greenwashing are going to fall a bit by the wayside. Um, and so there's going to be a shakeout. I think there is a bump. There's an excitement. There's some concern about how to meet different regulations. There will be investment funds and you will have to have a certain percentage of the portfolio to be focused on ESG and have to prove that constantly. And there will be measures. And when banks are loaning funds, there will be much like you have to meet certain ratios around working capital. I am sure that we will get to a spot where there will be ESG ratios. and You will be forced to measure and manage and maintain those or face certain penalties. And so the result is the consumers are going to continue to get more sophisticated. And so it is an encouraging and it sometimes feels daunting that there's so much work to be done, but I think we are going to start to see a convergence, right, as we have all of this energy and excitement um, that is building and will then start to plateau out, and then innovation will continue to push us along. And I think we'll wrap up on that note. I think there's a lot to be optimistic for, the work that both of y'all are doing uh, to innovate and support regenerative agriculture as a viable investment in your own ways and spheres, uh, I think will play an important role. Hopefully this podcast too is educating folks on the opportunities that are out there and investing and putting to work these kinds of uh, you know practices and philosophies for transforming our industry. Uh, and you know we'll end on the the warning as well, right? Don't just invest in greenwashing strategies, ones that will you know uh, maybe play a, a nice 
PR role in the short term, but that aren't part of a focused investment strategy that has a larger you know, vision for not only how to implement it, but how to make sure that an investment into something like regenerative agriculture actually pays off. So hopefully some of the strategies we learned today from Rick and Patrick will make that path a little clearer for our audience. And I'm sure we'll continue to explore uh, more ESG strategies, including how regenerative agriculture is, uh, you know, playing an outsized role in the future on the show. But till then, We'll go ahead and wrap things up. Thank you again to our two guests. First up, we were joined by Rick Mariner, President and Chief Operating Officer of Standard Soil. We were also joined by Patrick Long, Director at Opportune. Rick, if folks want to learn more about Standard Soil, they want to tap into some of the work that you're doing in this space, or maybe even just ask you some questions on where to start uh, with investing in their own regenerative agriculture strategy. How can they get in touch? How can they learn more about what y'all do? Well, I'd, I'd push them towards our, our brand, bluenestbeef.com. It's a good landing page for our blogs, our partnerships, our science. Uh, and it's also our marketplace where you can find uh, box beef where we deliver it. And then our bobo links, our snack foods. But bluenestbeef.com will uh, connect you to any of the founders as well. We look forward to the conversation. Thank you. And then, Patrick, same question to you. If folks want to tap into... Um some of the supportive work that Opportune is doing in helping guide investments into things like regenerative agriculture as part of an ESG portfolio, uh, or really just any other um, you know questions they might have on how to even approach this topic. How can they get in touch with you? How can they learn more? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Um, probably the best way is to go out to opportune.com. Um, our firm is diversified in the types of services that it offers across the energy industry. And each one of those services is absolutely evolving and keeping pace as the industry is moving as well. And so we've only talked about one small aspect here, but please visit opportune.com. And then you can also find us on LinkedIn and our thought leadership out there. Thank you. Fantastic. All right, y'all, this has been great. Thank you so much to the two of you, Rick, Patrick. We'll chat again soon. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard today and you want previous episodes or you want to make sure you don't miss out on future conversations and insightful discussions like this one, make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com, and subscribing to E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of E2B.